0: Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with Rachel Madel. How's it going, Rachel? It's going good, Chris. How was your weekend? Uh, busy. Busy as always. Uh, a lot of work this weekend uh, on all the other stuff that's going on. I mean, actually, I did a lot of work for my day job, you know, but um, we have a whole initiative coming out. We are getting my supervisor to come on, and we're going to talk about the whole initiative that we're doing. Listeners will be looking for that in a, in a, in a week or two, but uh, really busy. How about you? I had a busy weekend, too.
1: It was my birthday over the weekend. Yes. Happy birthday. Thank you. Did you yeah. do anything fun? Yeah. You know, I was kind of uh, pretty low-key, but I did spend time with a lot of my friends. Of course, all my family is back home, unfortunately, uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, which always makes me a little sad because I have a twin brother. And so, it's it's hard not being with him on our birthday, but we typically do a trip before our birthday. So, we kind of celebrated a month in advance.
0: Mm-hmm. You did. And you went on that hiking trip. I think we talked about
1: it on a previous episode. Yep. So of course we always, you know, FaceTime or do something so we can connect on our birthday, but one year we'll be together. So Rachel, I think something
0: was supposed to happen this week. We were supposed to record and then we, there was like a last minute cancellation. What happened?
1: Ooh, Chris, it was a, it was a really hard day. Um, so I'm going to make kind of a longer story, a little bit short. Um, essentially I was working with one of my clients and they had an intense, um, we'll say, bout of aggression towards me. And it was uncontrollable and I didn't know what to do. Um, and when you work with children with complex communication needs, oftentimes there's you know, some behaviors that go along with that. Um, sometimes some aggression, frustration, things like that. So it's something that I deal with a lot. But this specific instance was really challenging. Um, the I was in the room by myself, which is typically not what happens. I typically always overlap with ABA and parents were in the waiting room. And yeah, it was just really intense and I couldn't control the child. I couldn't calm the child down. And I got really emotional after the fact. And I kind of wanted to talk about it on the podcast because I, I'm sure that clinicians listening and parents listening can relate. But yeah, I had like a lot of emotions. So I like cut the session short, you know, of course. And afterwards, like closed the office door and I just started to cry. And I cried because I just felt very overwhelmed. When things like that happen, you kind of go in fight or flight. And it was just like, it was so extreme. And, you know, luckily I was okay and the child was okay. But, you know, it it didn't, it, it could have very easily gone a different way. Um, and so uh, my first reaction was I don't ever want to see that child again Like never again. Do I want to see that child? I don't want to work with the family. You know That was my gut reaction and then of course saying that to myself Brought up a lot of feelings and I felt you know guilty because I, I I know this family has been through a lot I know this child is struggling with communication. We're doing aac and so I know that Once things start picking up, hopefully the aggression will go down but you know kind of as a self-protective mechanism, I just felt like no, I don't want to do it. And so even this weekend, as fun as my um, birthday celebrations were, I just kind of kept going back to this family and trying to figure out like do I want to see them again? Can I help? you know how can we how can we work together in a way where I feel safe um, in what I'm doing but also you know can support the family? Um, so it's just, it's kind of been a lot for me going back and forth. Of course, I want to help. And I'm a lot more qualified than a lot of other clinicians to help because of my expertise in AAC and technology. But it just, I don't know, it's been, it's been a lot.
0: So let me ask, what kind of strategies did you land on to, or are you even considering, even if you haven't made a decision yet for about how to move forward? I mean, are you thinking like, a parent will always be there or there'll always be someone with you? Is that something that's on the on the table? What are, what are you thinking about?
1: Yeah. And I typically have someone in the room. Um, I, I find that it's challenging at times with parents being in the room. You know, I just think that children don't always do as well. Um, and behaviors actually are sometimes increased when when parents are in the room. I do think it's important to have behavior support which i typically always require um, this is kind of an extenuating circumstance which i've had with some of my other clients it's hard to get the scheduling down right and so that's a challenge but i've thought about you know only doing parent coaching i've thought about you know traveling to the family's home instead of having them in my office because you know as much as i love my office because it allows me to see more children Um, it's just, it's not super conducive for children with, you know, challenging behaviors and there's things like on the wall and, you know, on the desk and just all these things that are kind of dangerous, um, when things start getting, um, a little crazy. So I don't know, I'm still trying to figure it out. And I think I just, I'm fearful for the conversation that I know I have to have with the family. Um, because I don't want to disappoint them. I want to continue working with them and helping them as much as I can, but I also feel like I have like self-preservation that I need to think about. I, I feel oftentimes that I give so much of myself, especially with children with complex communication needs, and I'm really sensitive. I'm sensitive to these things, and I feel like it adds a layer of stress to my life um, that's kind of hard to, to put into words and to really feel maybe, but I do think it's there because at any given moment, a child that I'm working with can kind of get frustrated and you know, try to bite me or hit me or all these things that can, you know, happen. So it's just like, how do I balance these two things? Like, I of course want to help, but I also like, I know this takes a toll on me, my body, all these things.
0: So Rachel, I know this is something, first of all, thank you for sharing this because I know it's not easy to talk about, It's something that I have thought about a lot in that um, I am not doing direct therapy anymore, but there were times when I was, where I was alone with a student in the room, and it occurred to me, and it has occurred to me since, that if the student was injured or I was injured, there's no one to tell that story. There's no video evidence of what happened. There's no way to protect myself as a professional, let alone as a person, you know. And so things I've thought about in that regard that I wonder our options are in a school, some people might have a a walkie talkie, you know, or some sort of button or alarm that you could push and say, I need help, you know? This thing happened, how come that button was never pushed? Do you know what I mean? Or how come Mm -hmm. they didn't reach out? I could see that as as a strategy. Um, second is we do live in an age, you, I know you've talked about doing telepractice before, uh, and I wonder if a version of that is like, so yes, like you said, the uh, maybe the, the student doesn't do as well when the parent is in the setting, but could the parent be watching through this uh, telecommunication system, you know, an, an app that's streaming what's happening in the, so that it, that, look, I have video evidence of what happened. You know? yeah. um, I, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's something we have to be considering just to, like you said, protect yourself, but also protect the student and just the, the, the truth. Like, here's, here's what happened. I don't know. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that those types of things could definitely be helpful and something needs to happen, right? Like, I just, I can't. It's like, it's always when you're like, oh, it's okay this one time, you know? Like, and that's the, the situation at hand right now. So I do think that we can utilize technology in ways that both protect both, you know, both parties. Um, it's also really uh, like what I think about oftentimes, because this is not, you know, the first time this has happened to me, it, it did shake me more this time than it has in the past. Um, and of course, it just depends on the scenario. Like, I think the worst feeling as a clinician is feeling like you've lost control of a, a child's safety, you know? And that's, that's exactly how I felt. I felt like, oh my gosh, this child's going to hurt themselves. And there was self injurious behavior happening because they were so frustrated. You know, they were trying to destroy my office, you know, which at the end of the day, that's the least of my concerns um, as far as the property damage is concerned. But it's like all these things come into play. And, you know, it's one thing to be sitting across the table from a child who, you know, gets frustrated and lunges to you and tries to pull your hair or something like that. And then it's an isolated incident. But the things that really shake me are these incidents where I literally can't control the child they won't calm down no matter what I do or try. And then it just becomes like fight or flight. Like Mm -hmm. if a child's constantly trying to like, you know, aggress towards me and bite me, hit me, you know, all these things, like it's reflexive, you know, you put your hand out in front and like, it just, it gets so intense. Um, And those are the situations that like, I just can't handle. And so, yeah, I don't know. I don't exactly know what I'm going to do. The other thing that was weighing on me was these are the families who've already had so many clinicians quit. You know, these are the families that have been through multiple therapists who say, "I'm sorry, I can't work with your child." And so it's like I, I think that was why I got so emotional was because like I know I have such empathy for these families, and I don't want to be the one that quits. You know, I want to be the one that can you know persevere. I troubleshoot, figure this out, so that I can help.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, a strategy that comes to mind is. Like a sort social situation story. When the next time you see a student, or as a strategy for the parents, is to prepare the student that this is what anger looks like. This is an appropriate use of anger. Go and and be frustrated on this bear over here or whatever. You know what I mean? It's we're going to tell a story about how you, how to appropriately uh, let your aggressions out because the student doesn't know, right? I mean, we're going to leave with that. Like the student doesn't know uh, the appropriate way to act when frustrated, and so. We teach that, you know, and so mm-hmm. what would you do? Let's tell stories over and over again. So when you're feeling this way and what's making you feel this way, this is what you do when you feel that way so that you're we're giving them a chance. Because what will happen for certain is if he goes to another therapist, it starts all over again and they might very well end up in the same situation because no one is teaching what to do, what to tell him what
1: to do, you mm-hmm. know. I think that we do need to kind of troubleshoot and problem solve solutions like this. So. Um, I think it's important to like that's really what people need, the takeaway, right? Like what do we do in situations like this?
0: Yeah. Well, and I, I do think it's really valuable that people could empathize with you and say, Yes, I've been there. i I I feel I feel those same feelings, Rachel. Yeah. So uh I think it's okay to spend some time uh talking about those feelings, but then go to what's the actual action plan? You know, mm-hmm. what are the next steps?
1: Well, and I think that it's just I never had formalized training in behavior. So I, now I know a ton about behavior because all I do most of the day is have ABA therapists sitting with me, um, you know, talking through how they manage certain behaviors and what's causing the behaviors and things like that. So it's been a good experience for me, but it's also I think that it's something that we should be trained in um, more and have more access to. Because of course, I've learned through the people that I've collaborated with, but um, you know, it's on my on my list now. Like, I need some more formalized training, perhaps.
0: Well, something that I, in my years of experience, have learned that there's always an antecedent. There's a cause, right? And so, uh, again, using the strategy of videotaping sessions, you often don't see what this what was the antecedent. Like, it make it might feel like it came out of nowhere where did this aggressive view, I wasn't even pushing the student that hard, there was, like, what was it? And if you had the video evidence, you could go back and analyze it and be like, oh, I don't see it. Oh, wait, there there it is. Oh, I see what caused the, you know, he was trying to do this or that, and I was not seeing it in the moment, because it's very easy not to see it in the moment. Um, But then, once you know what that antecedent is, That's what you can address in a future therapy session with different strategies, or is it just a a future intervention? Like I said, not even during a therapy session, like a social situation story, like a video modeling, using those strategies to say, okay, when when this happens, here's what you do. Absolutely,
1: yeah, and I think that it's hard in real time. We're thinking about so many things at one time, right? Like I'm thinking about the student and what we're working on and the goals I want to address and what's going to happen next and what level of prompting I need. You know what I mean? All these things are kind of happening in real time. And so sometimes it's hard because there's these subtle things that are happening. And it's also hard because children in general, all children have a hard time with emotional regulation. That's something that children learn as they develop and grow. Um, You know, children with complex communication needs, not only do they have you know issues with emotional regulation but they can't communicate and so they can't express um you know what they need and what they want um that they don't want to do something anymore which is oftentimes um what happens when you know aggressive behavior happens is i pushed a child a little bit too far but it's also important because if we don't push a child out of their comfort zone then they won't learn so it's this balancing act that we constantly have to do I need to push a child just enough so that they expand and grow, but not so much that they become frustrated and shut down. Behaviors start to come out.
0: Yes, yes. So looking back on it, reflecting back on it, and if it's okay for me to ask, don't feel like you need to to answer this because I don't want to take you back to this traumatic experience. But um, my, my question would be, can you think of an antecedent? Can you think of something that may have triggered the student?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately it was just escape. The child was very tired, didn't want to do pretty much anything, um, which I can completely relate to. I mean, like it's Monday morning and I'm like, I feel like that child right now, <laughs> you know, like I don't want to do anything. Um, and so it, really what I was trying to do, because in a situation like that, child doesn't want to do something. I The did, child didn't want to sit at the table. I said, okay, and we that's our routine. Like we're very, I'm very routine based. I'm like, let's come sit at the table. We'll do, you know, a few things and then we can get up because the child you know, always wants to kind of go and wander around the room, which is fine. But, you know, I need to have some type of structure so that we can attend to the device and, you know, work on some things. And so anyway, child didn't want, was not having the table. And so what I was trying to do in that moment was facilitate, you can tell me you're all done because that's a teaching opportunity, right? Like child doesn't want to do something. Let's give language to that so that you can now communicate instead of just getting up and going or crying or fill in the blank. Um, let's talk about it. And of course, as you know, Chris, when it comes to behavior, you just have to have consistency. So the moment I said, "Okay, you can tell me if you're all done," and I kept saying, "You can tell me if you're all done," it just it escalated. And then it was like I couldn't. There was like no turning back. I felt like, um, and so I just tried everything. I stopped talking because a lot of times children escalate even more when you start talking to them. Um, and so I just was really calm and you know, the child was running around, throwing things, you know, all of the things. Um, like lunging towards me. Um, and so then yeah, it just kind of escalated and I wasn't able to have the teaching opportunity that I wanted.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like you did everything that was uh, appropriate, you know. Um, you know, something I see a lot is the table actually is the antecedent. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um it's something you see a lot is that uh, there's a lot of sitting that happens in classrooms, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder about if, if you have a student that Well, I mean, every student, what if we just got them up moving more, you know, Mm -hmm. in a very functional way, like, let's carry these bags and go deliver them to this. Obviously, you're not in a classroom setting in this in this setting. But in general, it's like, here's a delivery we have to make. Here's a task where we have to go put this thing here, you know, and Mm -hmm. sometimes it could be even like heavy stuff like reams of paper and things like that. And I wonder about activities like that in your room. Like, I wonder if your student here came in and it was a mess if he would help you like pick things up, you know, and mm-hmm. put things away mm-hmm. uh, so that there's movement built in to the, to the to the lesson. Only because I see how much sitting happens in a typical classroom, you know, and how much sitting I do in a day. Heck, mm-hmm. That's why I have the Fitbit, you know, and the little reminders that go off to say, get up and move. And I just wonder about that for students as well. And, and maybe not. I mean, and maybe not. Maybe that's, you know, they, I've definitely had that situation too where kids should be sitting and focused and instead they're up and wandering around. But I, I just wonder if, I, if we led with kinesthetic activities, if, if that might not be a, a, something that the student would, would gravitate towards. You know, obviously, I don't know. I don't know the student, but.
1: Yeah. And we, um, I had done some sensory movement things before. I always have children move around before we actually go transition to a table. I'm um, doing like wheelbarrows and like, you know, tra- heavy work and things like that, all these sensory sh- regulating strategies. But yeah, I mean, I completely agree as far as the table being viewed as work. This is where I go to sit th- to do things that maybe I don't want to do. And I- And I'm actually, I'm quite flexible when it comes to seating. A child doesn't have to actually sit. They can just stand next to the table. And so I'm not like super rigid when it comes to like, you have to sit at this table and listen. You know, I just, in a lot of ways, I just need to get a child's attention. And you know this child and a lot of the children that I work with, if there's not the structure of the chair um, or the table, I can't get their attention. I literally can follow them around and try to like get you know parallel play. Nothing really works with these students, um, and they're moving so quickly. Um, In an ultimate situation, I would be in an OT gym. Honestly, I would be swinging them and you know, utilizing other types of equipment that I just unfortunately don't have in my office. But yeah, it's just, it's, it's kind of challenging in a lot of ways. Well, that
0: is one of the strategies you mentioned, right? Is maybe moving to a different environment. So that makes a lot of sense. You said maybe going to the home environment or, or changing the location is a strategy that might be an option for this student. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know exactly what you mean. Kids that bounce from two seconds, they're in this thing. And then two, two seconds, they're into another thing. One strategy that I find useful in those cases is measuring those seconds. So, okay, this kid was into the Play Doh for four seconds and then he moved over and he went over to the block section. He was there for four seconds with the goal of okay, now that I know he's, his attention is four seconds on a thing, legit four seconds, how can I get it to six? You know, mm-hmm. how can I get it to eight? You know, what can we do with it? Can I put it on my nose? Can we drop it? You know, can you come into the environment and now it's a mess and you want to clean it up or put it away? Um, to measure that is often effective because then you can say, and it's so sometimes incremental that you don't even see the growth. Like, well, we went from four second attentions to 12 seconds in six months. Well, that's growth. You know, mm-hmm. for, for some students that is significant growth, how, how long they're maintaining their attention. So I feel like that is, and it gives you something to do where it doesn't feel like, well, I don't know how to get this kid's attention longer. Well, let's just measure it. Let's start there, you know?
1: hmm I know it's also hard with fleeting interest and like I have kids that I work with where they're interested in something until I'm next to them and then they're not interested anymore and so it's like just like my presence in some ways is averse you know which in some respects is probably because they're like they're therapyized right like it's like I know the drill you're an adult who's gonna try to tell me what to do and you know what I mean and so I think kids know this um and they just like they're not having it so um Yeah, it's just, it's interesting.
0: It's hard. Another strategy that comes to mind is something that I learned from an occupational therapist, which is the strategy is, whatever the name of it is, I can't remember, but the strategy is, okay, I really have this aversion to let's say applesauce, right? And so there's this applesauce on the table. Well, I can't even have it on the table. Okay, great. Well, we're going to just tolerate it being on a different table. And now we're going to move it two tables closer. And the next session is, now we're going to move it onto the chair next to you. Okay. And that's all. It's just sitting on the chair next to you. And then it's sitting on the table next to you. Okay. Now it's on a spoon. Okay. And now it's, and you're saying each, this is sessions building up, right? Not mm-hmm. within 30 seconds, you're moving it closer, but each session it's getting a little bit closer. Okay. Now you're, you're holding the spoon and it's on the end of the spoon while you're holding it. All right. Now you're just going to put it and you're going to smell it, or you're just going to put it on your lips. You don't have to eat it. Just touch it with your lips, you know, and the next day, and now touch it with your tongue. And now look it and now swallow it, and now you're eating it. You know what I mean? And over time, you come to tolerate that. And I wonder if that's not a way to tackle therapy fatigue in general. It's mm-hmm. like, well, okay, every time you come in this room, you know, I'm going to sit down at this table, and we're going to do something that is difficult for you. Mm-hmm. What if I just, what if I was the applesauce, you know, mm-hmm. I'll sit over here. You play with Play-Doh. Hey, I'm going to come grab this Play-Doh, but I'm going to run back over here. Well, I'm not going to sit next to you. I'm going to be over here and I'm still going to be modeling on my communication device. I'm still going to be talking, but I'm way over here. Dude, mm-hmm. you see, we're fine. And then the next time move a little closer, move a little closer. you might have to back up a little bit, but then move a little bit closer. And I wonder if that's, if that is, uh, and again, measuring that seeing, well, how close did I get and how many minutes did I have to be away, you know, per session, might be something that the student like, hmm, "And I have some power here, you know?" I don't know. I don't know. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great strategy. I think that what oftentimes I and probably other clinicians struggle with is like we want our, our sessions to be super efficient. And so I'm like, I want to do all the things. I want like I don't want to just like, you know, slowly make my way towards you, you know what I mean? Like that feels yeah. like a long drawn out process, which in some ways, like that's what learning is for some of our kids. And so we have to kind of just be okay with that. But like my first reaction to that is like, that feels like a waste of time, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's not true, but I feel like the, the efficiency in me is like, no, no, like I have to be able to do more, you know? And this is something that I teach clinicians too. Like clinicians who are like just starting out, they're like, oh, but like, it feels like we didn't really even do anything related to communication. I'm like, it's because we didn't, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like we modeled language today. That's what we did. We like built rapport today, you know, and sometimes it takes a really long time. Um, so I think it's, you have to be okay with that, but you know, it's obviously something I struggle with because, you know, some of the kids I work with, I'm like, oh my God, this is amazing. Look how much progress they're making. So it's just anytime progress is a little bit slower. Um, especially when it comes to things like, you know, it's like, I have that thought, which again, like I understand where it comes from, but my thought is, why can't you just like be next to me? Why can't you just sit at the table? You know, <laughs> I realize it's not as simple as that. Uh, that's why.
0: <laughs> well, social stories come into play there too, you know, and video modeling. Mm-hmm. But if, we, if we had a video of the session, then it could be like, look how you were sitting and how great that was. And look how happy that makes me and how happy it makes your mom and how make, happy it makes you and and how fun that was. And you can or you mm-hmm. can illustrate that. You know, something that came to mind when you were just sharing that is the opposite of for me, if we're, if we're getting raw here for a minute, mm-hmm. is that when I was um, doing direct therapy, I had the opposite feeling. What I mean by that is kids would make progress, and I wasn't always sure it was because of me, you know? Like, well, they probably would have made progress whether I was there or not, you know? And I, do I really know what I'm doing is even effective? I mean, sure, I'm measuring the effect. I'm, I'm measuring the changes happening for the student but I don't know that it's me that's causing the change. You know, we would joke, um, some of my colleagues and I would joke like, maybe this mean aunt came to visit this weekend and started really badgering this kid. And the kid really just got so motivated by this angry, mean, nasty ant that they learned the, the strategy that I've been teaching them. Uh, and they would have learned it anyway if they hadn't had me there. Of course, you don't know that, right? I mean, you, you can never know. You just know, you don't really know the cause or what's really working, what's not really working. You just know that the behaviors are changing that the, the skills that you're teaching are either learned, they're being learned or they're not. You don't always know. Um, and I always found that a little, I don't know, frustrating for myself. My, is what I'm doing really even working?
1: Well, especially when you think about the best therapy is the kind where you're, you're not the impetus of change, right? Like you are indirectly, but it's because you've influenced the circle of support. That's why the change is occurring. That's the best kind of therapy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's the most efficient kind. Um, I'll never forget the first time I had that thought. Actually, I was like, you know, fresh out of graduate school. And I was, it was an articulation case. This child had lots of language things going on, but also had articulation issues. And I would literally, the only thing I would target articulation wise during our sessions was like just incidental. I'm like, Oh, like that has a sound in it, you know, like say cat. Um, and like, I'll never forget the IEP meeting. The mom is like, His speech is so clear. Like, and I know it's because of you. Thank you so much. And I'm thinking to myself, I've barely touched articulation. Like your kid has so many, you know, expressive receptive language delays that like it's the least of my worries. And so I was just like, wow, like children make progress without direct intervention. (laughs) Especially with articulation. Oh, it was just interesting when I had that that realization for the first time.
0: Yes. So, so let me ask, what are you going to do? What do you think your next steps are with this family and with this student?
1: Uh, now that you've
0: had a few days to process and think about it and you know, what do you think you're actually going to do?
1: So I'm dreading it. First of all, let's be honest with each other. Um, it's something that I'm just like, Oh man, I hate conversations like this. Um, but I have to talk with the family and I have to be open about what happened, which I was, I said, you know, after everything, you know, here's what happened. Um, but we, there was no kind of troubleshooting. I was kind of like, you know, the emotional side of me was like, just wanted to say like, we're canceling for next week and forever. <laughs> and I didn't obviously say that cause I knew myself, I knew I needed to like calm down emotionally and think through everything. Um, so there wasn't a lot of communication about steps going forward. So I had to have a conversation with the family about what it looks like, what I'm going to need from them. Definitely going to have parents in the session with me the next time I see this child and then spend most of the session talking about the last session and, um, you know, how we can continue to work together, but not in the same way. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure.
0: Is this the sort of student that, um, do you think would empathize? I mean, has learned those skills at this point, like that, that you were sad or that you were scared that he or she made you feel scared?
1: Well, honestly, I, I don't know, but I'm still going to do it. Because I believe, actually, in talking about things like that with students, even if it appears as if they don't understand, um, but I absolutely will talk about that and model on my device and, you know, all those things because I think it's important, Um, especially – you can't have those conversations when children are upset. The same way that, like, when I'm crying hysterically, like, I don't want to talk. You know what I mean? (laughs) I need to stop crying, calm down, take some deep breaths, like, you know, activate my – uh, is it parasympathetic nervous system, which one's the the calm down one? I always forget I get them I,
0: I don't have that, so I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know.
1: <laughs> I have no idea um, but anyway, so you know that's not the, the the teaching opportunity the teaching opportunity is after you know the dust is settled so um yes, I will talk with the student about it.
0: that's so great, Rachel. that's that presuming potential piece that we hit home on this podcast over and over again right and as you- you're going to assume the student does understand and then you're going to, to teach and explain in a way that respects that, you know?
1: mm mm-hmm. We'll see how it goes. I'm nervous, guys. I like literally have a pit in my stomach thinking about it. Um, just what happened, but also going forward. And it just, yeah, I don't know. It just triggered me. It triggered me emotionally.
0: So this might also be sensitive, Rachel. So, so again, um, let's think about it carefully. Did he pull your hair?
1: No, because I have always had my hair back with everybody
0: because
1: <laughs> uh-huh. I've learned my lesson the hard way.
0: Gotcha. Well, and that was the, that's where my head went is that that's obviously something people can't see me bending my head down to show you how bald I am. My, my, my daughter just shaved my head yesterday. But uh, so I don't have to worry about that, right? And I wonder if, if you ever think about that, like, well, I guess maybe I'll just cut my hair. But you shouldn't have to, I guess is the point that I want to make sure is clear and that I'm saying it that you shouldn't have to. We should teach kids not to pull hair, Mm -hmm. not you should have to do something to adjust your hair, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm like real careful about everything that I have. I never wear necklaces or earrings. Um, I always have my hair back. Even kind of the types of clothes that I wear, I try to wear long sleeves because some of the kids that I work with, they scratch. Um, You know, I have worn arm guards and things like that in the past, but I just feel like that's a whole nother conversation, but I feel like if I go into a, a session with a student and I'm wearing protection, you know, it just, it, I feel like that in and of itself, like it causes problems, right? Barrier, like, yeah. yeah. And I just like, I don't love that. And I know that, and I've worked with some families and they're like, you absolutely have to do this. Um, and of course they respect their wishes, but I just, if it's up to me, you know, I'll just wear a long sleeve shirt and I will, if things start to, you know, escalate, of course I can put the arm guards on, but I don't think we get started on the right foot when I come in with, like, you know, essentially, like, shin guards on my arms. Yes. Do you –
0: could you put those underneath so that a student doesn't see them?
1: Probably, yeah. I mean, it would have to be the right type of attire. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, I I could.
0: Interesting. I've never worn those. I've never seen those. Uh, There's certain – pads and things like that, but uh, I've never had direct experience with that. So definitely had students that have had violent outbursts and have gone around the room and, and, and destroyed property in the room and pushed things over. Uh, I guess we should say explicitly, you're in a, uh, in a clinical setting here um, that you're describing, but if it was a classroom setting, you would remove all the other students um, while that student was there just to, to keep, them, keep them safe. Uh, I think that's the, the, probably the protocol in most schools. But uh, yeah, I have not actually had to wear protective gear like that before. I actually, I've never actually seen anyone wear it. But maybe it is hidden underneath the clothing. I don't
1: mm-hmm.
0: know. Uh, that makes yeah, a lot of sense.
1: It, I mean, it, it depends because sometimes it's very bulky. And so I've seen some of them that are like slimmer, but they're obviously not as protective. Um, you know, and I've also, I've seen kids literally rip them off people. So it's like, um, so it's just, it's really, it's really hard. It's a hard conversation to have and- why so I did want to talk about it with
0: everyone. Well, I tend to lean on and people have heard me speak about this that could we engineer the the situation before it happens to be so empowering and so engaging and and so fun that you're still learning language, you're still being challenged, but you're being challenged in a way where there's less demands, if you will, you know, mm-hmm. and I know that is a very theoretical thing for me to say while well, we're just chatting on the, you know, rather than, well, how do you actually do it? And like I said, I think the a kinesthetic component, that it, that is something that can be added in most situations when it's usually not, you know, uh, it, it's very rare that I, that I find that a behavior happens when kids are up and moving. It's usually mm-hmm. when they've mm-hmm. been sitting. Um, so I wonder about that. Like, can we lead with re-engineering the environment and re- re-engineering the the design of the experience that the kids are coming into that would um, that would decrease the number of behaviors. You know, so many kids that I know are uh, the, the therapy that they're engaged in, and of course, I'm not saying that you're doing this, Rachel. It, but it seems like it's compliance driven. And I think that would tend me that would if I was in a, that sort of situation, I would want to rebel and act out too. But if I was in a situation, I mean, when I have to do something and someone's forcing me to do it, oh, there's no greater way for me to drag my feet and for me to be frustrated and me to be like, people couldn't see me, but I just made this angry face, you know. Um, But if, but the same thing needs to get done, and I'm the one that says, oh, this has to get done. I'm, uh, I got to do this. I really want to do this. Uh, It could be the same sort of activity, you know. Think of it just this way: like we have to make a slide deck for a presentation we have coming up. Well, if you and I have decided we want to do that together, well, suddenly I'm excited to get in there and work on the slide deck. But if it's like, hey, you have to make this slide deck and it's due by two o'clock, oh, God, do I really have to do it? You know, and the same activity can be so empowering or it can be so demanding.
1: No, absolutely. And I think that's why a few things. One, we have to follow a student's interests and figure out what is that intrinsic motivation. Because I feel like, a, like all students, I believe all students have are intrinsically motivated by certain activities, people, toys, foods, whatever it might be. I, every student has that. It's, just, it's our job to uncover it. It's our job to figure out what it is and then build off of that. And that's always where we start, right? Because that's empowering to students. It's you know, motivating. It's, um, it builds excellent rapport. Like, I'm not the the adult that's going to come into your life and just like bark orders at you and tell you what to do. Instead, I'm going to help you express yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to help you figure out how to communicate to, you know, get those things that you so intrinsically desire.
0: Yes. And maybe one of those things that kids intrinsically desire is to control other people, or maybe control is not the right word, but um, command. Meaning, so I'm not the person, like you said, that's going to bark orders at you you can bark orders at me. You can mm-hmm. tell me what to do. I'll be your puppet all day long, you know what I mean? Um, and how often does that happen? How often are kids, the kids that we're talking about with these intense behavior difficulties, how often are they the ones in charge of anything? You know. So what if we empower them, gave them the opportunity to be in charge of something, us, and and suddenly, okay, I'm the one who's going to go away. You told me to go away and I'm, I've modeled go away and I went away. And I gave you the opportunity to, 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 to say, and I'm sure teaching you what those words mean by, by me going away. And oh, by the way, we can play stop and go and we can play you know red light, green light and you can say these words and you're controlling me. We can play Simon Says and you're controlling me. And this might be in a very empowering way that, that again, so many students don't get the opportunity to control anything. I mean, from the dip, from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep, someone is telling them what to do 24 seven.
1: Yeah, which is why, you know, thinking about pragmatic functions when we're teaching language is so important. You know, obviously, a lot of people start with requesting. It's easy. It's like, okay, you want this, ask for it. But like you said, directing the actions of others is really motivating for kids um, when they realize that they have power, right? They have control. Um, that's something that's really motivating and exciting because, like you said, they oftentimes don't have that. Um, protesting, you know, saying, no, stop, all done all these things, um, which is kind of what I was trying to do with the student, but didn't really work out the way I wanted it to. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not going to keep trying, right? I'm yeah. not going to stop trying to teach what that word means and how to communicate. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that we just just start thinking a little bit outside of the box.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and I wonder like if it's it's you teaching all done, probably in a very isolated situation where if we could We've talked about modeling and partner augmented input and aided language stimulation. I wonder if those words were modeled to him more frequently throughout his entire life without the demand of him having to, or even the expectation that he touches, you know, all done. He probably is only seeing you do that, right? I mean, again, that's a huge generalization. I mean, not knowing the kids, but I wonder just generally how many parents are modeling those words? How many teachers are modeling those words? that he's not getting the exposure that he needs to, to learn what those words mean.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I think that we can expect, especially with these more abstract language concepts, we can't expect them to be heard, you know, once or twice or even a hundred times and just, it clicks, right? It has to be paired with meaningful experiences. Language has to be paired with those experiences in order for it to solidify. Um, And some kids learn it right away. Some kids, it takes a long time. Um, Regardless, kids need to to hear it and to see us showing them on a device how to do it.
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, Rachel, I'm really sorry that that happened to you, but it is. I'm glad that we got to talk about it. I'm glad you felt like this was a space that we could chat and 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 share these things. Not just you and I, but with the, the with the all the listeners.
1: Yeah, and you know what would make me feel a lot better is to hear everyone else's experiences. Because I think when we have these hard feelings and these hard situations, we feel like we're the only person that has ever questioned working with a family. Like I feel like I'm the only clinician that like questioned whether or not I should give up or keep trying. So I would love to hear what you guys think. If you could post maybe in the Facebook group um, if you feel comfortable, or you can always send me a message. <laughs> I really just want to you know talk through this and hear everyone else's experiences um, obviously listening to my story and sharing a story of your own, because I think that's how we can all connect with each other and, um, kind of go through some challenging things, but you know, it's always better going through a challenge with other people around you, understanding you and, um, relating to your experiences.
0: Well said, well said. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel. Speaking of a call to action, we had a bunch of people come to our AAC After Work session. So we just wanted to shout out to everyone who came to see us there and chatted and participated with our AAC After Work session. That was all about uh, digital storytelling. And this this session we talked about making like a, a social situation story. I don't think we mentioned that on Tuesday when we did our presentation, but um, it could it could be uh, certainly certainly tied together there. But thank you for coming if you listened and you participated there live during our AAC after Work session.
1: And if you guys want to access that course, you can go to bit.ly TWDPod. You can find all of our courses there. So if you haven't so if you haven't listened to any of our podcasts that we're offering CEU credit for, um, you'll find all of our courses there including the new AAC After Work one. Uh, we would love to have you guys. We love our community and now you can listen to our podcast and earn CEUs. So for talking with Tech, I'm Chris Bouquet with Rachel Madle and we'll talk to you next time. Do you have an idea for a product or book, or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started, and what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders podcast and fast track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. You're listening to the
0: Exceptional Podcast Network.